Welcome to Volume 2 of Jeeves in the Morning. Chapter 3 The Bollinger Bar conducts its beneficent activities about halfway up Bond Street, and on the other side of the thoroughfare, immediately opposite, there stands a courteous and popular jeweler's, where I generally make my purchases when the question of investing in bijouterie arises. In fact, the day being so fine, I was rather thinking of looking in there now and buying a new cigarette case. It was outside this jeweler's that the odd spectacle was in progress. A bloke of furtive aspect was shimmering to and fro on the threshold of the emporium, his demeanour rather like that of the cat in the adage, which according to Jeeves, and I suppose he knows, let I dare not wait upon I would. He seemed, that is to say, desirous of entering, but was experiencing some difficulty in making the grade. He would have a sudden dash at it, and then draw back, and stand shooting quick glances left and right, as if fearing the scrutiny of the public eye. Over in New York, during the days of Prohibition, I've seen fellows doing the same sort of thing outside of speakeasies. He was a massive bloke, and there was something in his appearance that seemed familiar. Then, as I narrowed my gaze and scanned him more closely, memory did its stuff. That beefy frame, that pumpkin-shaped head, the face that looked like a slab of pink dough. It was none other than my old friend Stilton Cheesewright, and what he was doing pirouetting outside the jewellery bins was more than I could understand. I started across the road with the idea of instituting a probe or quiz, and at the same time he seemed to summon up a sudden burst of resolution. As I paused to disentangle myself from a passing bus, he picked up his feet, tossed his head in a mettlesome sort of way, and was through the door like a man dashing into a railway station buffet with only two minutes for a gin and tonic before his train goes. When I entered the establishment myself, he was leaning over the counter, his gaze riveted on some species of the merchandise which was being shown to him by the gentlemanly assistant. To prod him in the hindquarters with my umbrella was, with me, the work of an instant. Ahoy there, Stilton! I cried. He spun around with a sort of guilty bound, like an adagio dancer surprised while watering the cat's milk. Oh, hello, he said. There was a pause. At a moment like this, with old boyhood friends meeting again after long separation, I mean to say, you might have expected a good deal of animated what-hoeing and an immediate picking up of the threads. Of this, however, there was a marked absence. The old Lang Syne spirit was a strong one in me, but not, or I was mistaken, equally strong in G. Darcy Cheesewright. I have met so many people in my time who have wished that Bertram was elsewhere that I have come to recognise the signs and it was these signs that this former playmate was now exhibiting. He drew away from me from the counter, shielding from my gaze with his person, like somebody trying to hide the body. I wish you wouldn't go spiking people in the backside with your beastly umbrella, he said, and one sensed the querulous note. Gave me a nasty shock. I apologised gracefully, explaining that if you have an umbrella and are fortunate enough to catch an old acquaintance bending, you naturally do not let the opportunity slip, and endeavoured to set him at his ease with genial chit-chat. From the embarrassment he was displaying, I might have been some high official in the police force, interrupting him in the middle of a smash-and-grab raid. His demeanour perplexed me. Well, 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 I said. 
quite a while since we met Stilton. Yes. He responded, his air that of a man who was a bit sorry it hadn't been longer. How's the boy? Oh, all right. How are you? Fine, thank you. As a matter of fact, I'm feeling unusually fizzy. That's good. I thought you'd be pleased. Oh, I am. Goodbye, Bertie. He said, shaking me by the hand. Nice to have seen you. I looked at him amazed. Did he really imagine, I asked myself, that I was as easily got rid of as this? My experts have tried to get rid of Bertram Worcester and have been forced to admit defeat. I'm not leaving you yet, I assured him. Aren't you? He asked wistfully. No, no, still here. So, Jeeves tells me you dropped in on me this morning. Yes. Accompanied by Nobby. Yes. You live at Steeple Bumpley too, I hear. Yes. It's a small world. Not so very. Jeeves thinks it is. Well, fairly small, perhaps. He agreed, making concession. You're sure I'm not keeping you, Bertie? No, no. I thought you might have a date somewhere. No, no, not a thing. There was another pause. He hummed a few bars of a popular melody, but not rollicking. He also shuffled his feet quite a bit. Been there long? Where? Steeple Bumpley. Oh, no, not very. Like it? Very much. What do you do there? Do? Come, come, you know what I mean by do. Bogo Fiddleworth, for instance, writes wholesome fiction for the masses there. My Uncle Percy relaxes there after the day's shipping magnating. What's your racket? A rather odd look came into his map, and he fixed me with a cold and challenging eye, as if daring me to start something. I remembered having seen the same defiant glitter behind the spectacles of a man I met in a country hotel once, just before he told me his name was Snodgrass. It was as if this old companion of mine were on the brink of some shameful concession. Then he seemed to think better of it. Oh, I mess about. Mess about? Yes, just mess about. Doing this and that, you know. There seemed nothing to be gained by pursuing this line of inquiry. It was obvious he did not intend to loosen up. I passed on accordingly to the point which had been puzzling me so much. Well, flitting lightly over that, I said, why are you hovering? Hovering? Yes. When? Just now, outside the shop. I wasn't hovering. You were distinctly hovering. You reminded me of a girl Jeeves was speaking about the other day who stood with reluctant feet where the brook and the river met, and I was following you in. I, I find you buzz-buzzing in the ear of the assistant, plainly making some furtive purchase. What are you buying, Stilton? Fixed by my penetrating eye, he came clean. I suppose he saw that further concealment was useless. A ring, he said in a low, hoarse voice. What sort of a ring, I asked, pressing him. An engagement ring, he muttered, twisting his fingers, and in other ways showing he was fully conscious of his position. Oh, are you engaged? Yes. Well, well, well. I laughed heartily, as is my custom on these occasions. But on his inquiring in a throaty growl, rather like a snarl of the Rocky Mountain Timberwolf, what the devil I was cackling about, cheese the mirth. I had always found Stilton intimidating when stirred. In a weak moment at Oxford, misled by my advisers, 
I once tried to do a bit of rowing, and Stilton was the bird who coached us from the towing path. I can still recall some of the things he had said about my stomach, which, rightly or wrongly, he considered that I was sticking out. It would seem that when you are a vulgar belt man, you aren't supposed to stick your stomach out. I always laugh when people tell me they're engaged. I explained more soberly. It did not mollify him, if mollify is the word I want. He continued to glower. You have no objection to my being engaged? No, no. Why shouldn't I be engaged? Oh, quite. What do you mean by oh, quite? I didn't quite know what I meant by oh, quite. Unless possibly oh, quite. I explained this trying to infuse into my manner a soothing what is it, for he appeared to be hotting up. I hope you'll be very, very happy, I said. He thanked me, though not effusively. Nice girl, I expect. Yes. The response was not what you would call lyrical, but we Worcesters can read between the lines. His eyes were rolling in their sockets and his face had taken on the colour and expression of a devout tomato. I could see he loved like a thousand bricks. A thought struck me. It's not Nobby, is it? No, she's engaged to Boko Fiddleworth. What? Yes. I never knew that. He might have told me. Nobby and Boko have hitched up, have they? Yes. Well, well, well. The laughing love god has been properly up on his toes in and around Steeple Bumpley of late, what? Yes. Never an idle moment. Day and night shifts. Your betrothed, I take it, is a resident. Yes. Her name's Cray. Florence Cray. What? The word escaped my lips as a sort of yowl, and he started and gave me the raised eyebrow. I suppose it always perplexes the young Romeo to some extent when fellows begin yowling on being informed of the loved one's identity. What's the matter? He asked, a rather strained note in his voice. Well, of course that yowl of mine, as you might well imagine, had been one of ecstasy and relief. I mean, if Florence was all tied up with him, the peril I'd been envisaging could be considered to have blown a fuse and, and ceased to impend. Spinoza or no Spinoza, I felt this let Bertram out. But I couldn't very well tell him that. No, oh, nothing, I said. You seem to know her. Oh, yes, we've met. I've never heard her speak of you. No? No. Have you known her long? A certain time. Did you know her well? Pretty well. When you say pretty well, you mean... Fairly well, tolerably well. How did you come to know her? I was conscious of a growing embarrassment. A little more of this, I felt, and he would elicit the fact that his betrothed had once been very near to Bertram. A dash sight nearer, as we have seen, than Bertram had liked. And no recently engaged bimbo cares to discover that he was not the little woman's first choice. It sort of rubs the bloom off the thing. What he wants to feel is that she spent her time gazing out the turret window in a yearning spirit till he came galloping up on his white horse. I temporised accordingly. I believe the word is temporised. I should have checked up with Jeeves. Her ghastly father is married to my frightful aunt. Is Lady Warpleston your aunt? And how? And you didn't know her before that? Well, yes, slightly. I see. He was still giving me the searching look, like a G-man hobnobbing with a suspect, and I am not ashamed to confess that I wiped a bead of purse from my brow with the ferrule of my umbrella.
That embarrassment to which I have referred was still up and doing. In fact, more so than ever. I could see now what I had failed to spot before, that in thinking of him as a Romeo, I had made an incorrect diagnosis. The bird, whose name ought to have sprung to my mind, was Othello. In this cheese writer was plain. I had run up against one of those touchy lovers who go about the place in a suspicious and red-eyed spirit, eager to hammer the stuffing out of such citizenry as they suppose to be or have been in any sense matey with the adored subject. I would in short require but a sketchy outline of the facts relating to self and Florence to unleash the caveman within him. Would I say slightly, I hasten to add, I mean, of course, that we were just acquaintances. Just acquaintances, eh? Just. You simply happened to meet her once or twice. That's right, you put it in a nutshell. I see. The reason I ask is that it seemed to me when I told you she was engaged to me that your manner was rather peculiar. It always is before lunch. You started. Touch of a cramp. And uttered an exclamation as if the news had come as an unpleasant shock to you. No. You're sure it didn't? Not a bit. In fact, you were mere acquaintances. Mere to the core. Still, it's strange she's never mentioned you. Well, pip pip, I said, changing the subject and withdrew. Chapter 4 It was a grave and thoughtful Bertram Worcester who started to amble back to the old flat. I was feeling a bit weak, too. During the recent scene, I had run the gamut of emotions, as I believe it is called, and that always takes it out of me. My first reaction to Stilton's revelation had, as I have indicated, been relief, and of course, I was still rolling the eyes up to heaven in silent thankfulness a goodish bit. But it is seldom that the Worcesters think only of self, and I now found the contemplation of the dreadful thing which had come upon this man filling me almost to the brim with pity and terror. It seemed to me that a Save Stilton Cheeserite movement ought to be got under way immediately. For though he wasn't what you might call absolutely one of my bosom pals like Boko Fiddleworth, one has human feelings. I remember how the iron had entered into my gizzard when I was faced with the prospect of being led to the altar by Florence Cray. One could see, of course, how the tragedy had occurred. It was the poor blister's pathetic desire to do his soul a bit of good that had landed him in this awful predicament. As is so often the case with these stolid, beefy birds, he had always had a yearning for higher things. This whole business of jacking up the soul is one of those varies that occurs to what Jeeves called the psychology of the individual, some being all for it and others not. You take me, for instance. I don't say I've got much of a soul, but such as it is, I'm perfectly satisfied with the little chap. I don't want people fooling with it. Leave it alone, I say. Don't touch it. I like it the way it is. But with Stilton it was different. Buttonhole him and offer to give his soul a shot in the arm, and you found in him a receptive audience and a disciple, ready to try anything once. Florence must have seemed to him just what the doctor ordered, and he had probably quite enjoyed thumbing through the pages of types of ethical theory, feeling no doubt that this was the stuff to give to the troops. But, and this was the reflection that furrowed the brow, 
how long could this last? I mean, to say he might be liking the setup, but as I thought, the time would come when he would examine his soul and note how it had sprouted to say, fine, that's enough to go on with. Let's call today. Only to discover that he was inextricably entangled with a girl who had merely started. It was from this fate, which is sometimes called the bitter awakening, that I intended to rescue him. How to do it was, of course, a problem, and many chaps in my place would, I suppose, have been nonplussed. But my brain was working like a buzz that morning, and the two snifters of the Bollinger had put a keen edge on it. By the time I was latchking my way into the flat, I had placed my fingers on the solution. The thing to do, I saw, was to write a strong note to Nobby Hopwood, outlining the situation and urging her to draw Stilton aside and make it quite clear to him what he was up against. Nobby, I'd reasoned, had known Florence since she was so high and would consequently be in a position to assemble all the talking points. Still, just in case she might have overlooked any of them, I carefully pointed out in my communication all of Florence's defects, considered not only as a prospective bride, but also as a human being. I put my whole heart into the thing, and it was with an agreeable feeling of duty done and a kindly act accomplished that I took it around the corner and dropped it in the pillar box. When I got back, I found Jeeves once more in residence. He'd returned from his mission and was fooling about at some domestic task in the dining room. I gave him a hail, and he floated in. Jeeves, I said, you remember Mr. Cheeseright who called this morning? Yes, sir. I ran into him just now, buying an engagement ring. He's betrothed. Indeed, sir. Yes, and you know who too? Lady F. Cray. Indeed, sir. We exchanged a meaningful glance, or rather, two meaningful glances. I giving him one, he giving me the other. There was no need for words. Jesus familiar with every detail of the Worcester Cray in Brolio, having been constantly at my side, right through that critical period in my affairs. As a matter of fact, as I have recorded elsewhere in the archives, it was he who got me out of the thing. And what is so poignant, Jeeves, if that's the word I want, is that he seems to like it. Indeed, sir. Yes, rather pleased about it, all than otherwise. It struck me. It reminded me of those lines in the poem. See how the little, how does it go, tum-tum, tiddly-push? Perhaps you remember the passage. Alas, regardless of their fate, the little victims play, sir. Quite. Sad, Jeeves. Yes, sir. He must be safe from himself, of course, and fortunately I have the situation well in hand. I've taken all the necessary steps and anticipate a happy and successful issue. And now, I said, turning to the other matter on the agenda paper, tell me about Uncle Percy. You saw him? Yes, sir. Was he in the market for aid and counsel? Yes, sir. I knew I was right. What was it? Blackmail? Does he want you to pinch damaging correspondence from the peroxided? Has some quick-thinking adventurous got him in her toils? Oh, no, sir. I'm sure his lordship's private life is above reproach. I weighed this in the light of known facts. I'm not so dash sure about that. It depends what you call reproach. He once chased me over a measured mile showing great accuracy with his hunking crop. At a moment, too, when being halfway through my first cigar, I was in urgent need of quiet and repose. To my mind, a man capable of that would be capable of anything. What if it wasn't blackmail? What was the trouble? His lordship finds himself in a somewhat difficult position, sir. 
What's biting him? He did not reply for a space. A wooden expression had crept into his features, and his eyes had taken on the look of cautious reserve, which you see in those of parrots when offered half a banana by a stranger of whose bona fides they are not convinced. It meant that he had come over all discreet, as he sometimes does, and I hastened to assure him that he might speak freely. You know me, Jeeves, the silent tomb. The matter is highly confidential, sir. It should not be allowed to go further. Wild horses won't drag it all to me. Not that I suppose they'll try. Well then, sir, his lordship informs me that he is in the process of concluding the final details of a business agreement of great delicacy and importance. And he wanted you to vet the thing for snags? Not precisely that, sir, but he desired my advice. They all come to you, Jeeves, don't they? From the lowest to the highest. It is kind of you to say so, sir. Did he mention what the B.A. of Great D. and I was? No, sir, but of course one has read the papers. I haven't. You do not study the financial pages, sir. Never give them a glance. They have been devoting considerable space of late to rumours of a merger or combination which is said to be impending between his lordship's pink funnel line and an equally prominent shipping firm of the United States of America, sir. It is undoubtedly to this that his lordship was guardedly alluding. The information did not make me leap about to any extent. Going to team up, are they, these nautical tycoons? It is supposed, sir. Well, good. God bless them. Yes, sir. I mean, why shouldn't they? Exactly, sir. Well, what's the difficulty? A somewhat tense situation has arisen, sir. The negotiations would appear to have arrived at a point where it is essential that his lordship shall meet and confer with the gentleman conducting the pourparlers on behalf of the American organization. On the other hand, it is vital that he shall not be seen in the latter's society, for such a meeting would instantly be accepted in the city as conclusive proof that the fusion of interests was about to take place, with immediate reactions on the respective shares of the two concerns. I began to see daylight. There have been mornings, after some rout or revel at the drones, when this sort of thing would merely have caused the head to throb, but today, as I have said, I was feeling exceptionally bright. They would go up, you mean. A sharp rise would be inevitable, sir. And Uncle Percy views such a prospect with concern? Yes, sir. His idea being to collect a parcel cheap before the many-headed can horn in and spoil the market. Precisely, sir. Rem acu tetagisti. Rem? Acu tetagisti, sir. A Latin expression. Literally, it means... You have touched the matter with a needle. But a more idiomatic rendering would be, Put my finger on the nub! Exactly, sir. Yes, I get it now. You clarify the situation. Getting right down to it, these old two buzzards have got to foregather in secret and require a hideout. Precisely, sir. And of course, the movements of both gentlemen are being closely watched by representatives of the financial press. I suppose this mystic sort of stuff goes on all the time in the world of commerce. Yes, sir. One understands and sympathizes. Yes, sir. 
though one dislikes the idea of Uncle Percy getting any richer. Already has the stuff in gobs. However, bearing in mind the fact that he is an uncle by marriage, I suppose one ought to espouse his cause. Had you anything to suggest? Yes, sir. I bet you had. It occurred to me that such a meeting might well take place unobserved. If the two parties were to arrange to come together beneath the roof of some remote country cottage. I mused. You mean a cottage in the country somewhere? You have interpreted me exactly, sir. I don't think of that much, Jeeves. You must be losing your grip. Sir? To name but one objection, how can you go to the owner of a country cottage, whom you don't know from Adam, and ask him to let you and your pals plot in the parlour? It would be necessary, of course, sir, that the proprietor of the establishment should be no stranger to his lordship. He would be somebody who knew Uncle Percy, you mean? Precisely, sir. But, jeez, my dear old soul, you don't see that that makes it still worse. Use the bean. In that case, the chap says to himself, Hello, old Warpleston, having secret meetings with mystery men? Come, come, what's this all about? Oh, but this means that the merger I've been reading about so much is going to come off. And he nips out and phones his broker to start buying those shares and to keep on buying till he's blue in the face, thus wrecking all Uncle Percy's carefully laid plans and rendering him sicker than mud. You follow me, Jeeves? Completely, sir. I had not overlooked that contingency. The occupant of the cottage would, of course, have to be some gentleman whom his lordship could trust. Such as? Well, yourself, sir. Sorry to have to rub it in like this, but it's only kind to remove the scales from your eyes. I haven't got a cottage. Yes, sir. I don't get you, Jeeves. His lordship is placing one of his own at your disposal, sir. He instructed me to say that he wishes you to proceed tomorrow to Steeple Bumpley and... Steeple Bumpley? Where you will find a small but compact residence awaiting you, in perfect condition for immediate occupation. It is delightfully situated not far from the river. It needed no more than that word river to tell me what had occurred. On his good mornings, I don't suppose there are more than a handful of men in the W1 Postal District of London swifter to spot Oompus Boompus than Bertram Worcester, and this was one of my particularly good mornings. I saw the whole hideous plot. Jeeves, I said, you have done the dirty on me. I am sorry, sir. It seemed the only solution of his lordship's problem. I feel sure, sir, that when you see the residence in question, your prejudice against Steeple Bumpley will be overcome. I speak, of course, only from hearsay, but I understand from his lordship it is replete with every modern convenience. It contains one large master's bedroom, a well-appointed sitting-room, water both hot and cold. The usual domestic offices, I said, and I meant it to sting. Yes, sir. Furthermore, you will be adjacent to Mr. Fittleworth. And you will be quite adjacent to your fish. Why, yes, sir. The point had not occurred to me, but now that you mention it, it is certainly so. I should find a little fishing most enjoyable, if you could spare me from time to time while we are at Wee Nook. Did you say Wee Nook? Yes, sir. Spelled, I warrant, with an E? Yes, sir. I breathed heavily through the nostrils. Listen to me, Jeeves, the thing's off. You understand? Off. Spelled with an O and two Fs. 
I'm dashed if I'm going to be made a... What's the word? Sir? Cat's paw. The white cat's paw. I mean, what have cats got to do with it? The expression derives from the old story of the cat, the monkey, and the chestnut, sir. It appears that... Skip it, Jeeves. This is no time for chewing the fat about the animal kingdom. And if it's the story about where the monkey puts the nuts, I know it. And it's very vulgar. Getting back to the res, I absolutely, positively, and totally refuse to go to Steeple Bumpley. Well, of course, sir. It is perfectly open to you to adopt the attitude you indicate. But... He paused, massaging the chin. I saw his point. Uncle Percy would look askance, you mean. Yes, sir. And might report the matter to Aunt Agatha. Precisely, sir. And her ladyship, when incensed, can be noticeably unpleasant. Rem acutetichisti, I said moodily. All right, start packing. Chapter 5 it has been said of Bertram Worcester by those who enjoy his close acquaintance that if there is one quality more than another that distinguishes him, it is his ability to keep the lip stiff and upper and make the best of things. Though crushed to the earth as the expression is, he rises again, not absolutely in mid-season form perhaps, but perkier than you would expect and with an eye alert for silver linings. Waking the next morning to another day and thumbing the bell, for the cup of tea, I found myself, though still viewing the future with concern, considerably less down among the wines and spirits than I had been yestreen. The flesh continued to creep briskly at the thought of entering the zone of influence of Uncle Percy and loved ones, but I was able to discern one reasonably brightish spot in the setup. You did say, Jeeves, I said, touching on this as he entered with the steaming bohea that Aunt Agatha would not be at Steeple Bumpley to greet me on arrival? Yes, sir. Her ladyship expects to be absent for some little time. If she's going to remain with young Toast till they've de-mumped him, it may well be that she will be away during the whole of my sojourn. Quite conceivably, sir. That's a substantial bit of goose. Yes, sir. And I'm happy to be able to indicate another. In the course of her visit yesterday, Miss Hopwood mentioned a fancy dress ball, which it appears is to take place at East Wibley, the market town adjacent to Steeple Bumpley. You will enjoy that, sir. I shall indeed, I assented, for as a dancer I outfred the nimblest astaire, and fancy dress binges have always been my dish. When does it come to a head? Tomorrow night, I understand, sir. Well, I must say this has brightened the horizon considerably. When I have breakfasted, I will go out and buy a costume. Simbeth the sailor, don't you think? That should prove most effective, sir. Not forgetting the ginger whiskers to go with it. Precisely, sir. They are of the essence. If you've finished packing, you can cram it into the small suitcase. Very good, sir. We'll drive down, of course. Possibly it would be best, sir, if I were to make the journey by train. A bit haughty, this exclusiveness, isn't it, Jeeves? I should have mentioned, sir, that Miss Hopwood rang up, hoping that you would be able to accommodate her in your car. Assuming that I should be failing in your wishes to do so, I took the responsibility of replying that you would be quite agreeable. I see. Well, that's all right. Her ladyship has also telephoned. Aunt Agatha? Yes, sir. 
No rot, I trust, about having changed her mind and decided not to rally round young Toss. Oh, no, sir. It was merely to leave a message saying that she wishes you to call in at Aspinall's in Bond Street before you leave and secure a brooch which she purchased there yesterday. She does? Why me? I asked, speaking with a touch of acerbity, for I rather resented this seeming inability of the relative's part to distinguish between a nephew and a district messenger boy. I understand the trinket is a present for Lady Florence, sir, who is celebrating her birthday today. Her ladyship wishes you to convey it to its destination personally, realizing that, should she entrust it to the ordinary channels, the gift will be delayed in its arrival beyond the essential date. You mean if she posts it, it won't get there in time? Precisely, sir. I see. Yes, there's something to that. Her ladyship appeared a little dubious as to your ability to carry through the commission without mishap, and... What? But I assured her that it was well within your scope. I should think so, I said piqued. I balanced a thoughtful lump of sugar on the teaspoon. So it's Lady Florence's birthday, is it? I said pondering. This opens up a social problem on which I should be glad to have your opinion. Ought I to weigh in with a present? No, sir. Not necessary, you think? No, sir. Not after what has occurred. I was glad to hear him say so. I mean, when one wants on all occasions to do the poor thing, it is a tricky business, this bestowing of gifts, and apt to put ideas into a girl's head. Coming on top of Spindrift and Spinoza, the merest bottle of scent at this juncture might well have set such a seal upon my glamour as to cause the Beazel to decide to return Stilton to store and make other arrangements. Well, I defer to your judgment, Jeeves. No presents for Lacrae, then. No, sir. But while on the subject, we shall shortly have to be nosing around one for La Hopwood. Sir? A wedding gift. She's gone and got engaged to Boko Fiddleworth. Indeed, sir. I am sure I wish the young lady and gentleman every happiness. Well spoken, Jeeves. Me too. The projected union, I may say at once, is one that has my complete approval, which is not always the case when a pal puts the bands up. No, sir. Too often on such occasions, one feels as I feel so strongly with regard to poor old Stilton, that kindly thing to do would be to seize the prospective bridegroom's trousers in one's teeth and draw him back from danger, as faithful dogs do with their masters on the edge of precipices on dark nights. Yes, sir. But in the present case, I have no such misgivings. Each of the contracting parties, in my opinion, has picked a winner, and it is with a light heart that I shall purchase the necessary fish slice. I'm even prepared, if desired, to be best man, and make a speech at the wedding breakfast, and one cannot say more than that. No, sir. Right ho, Jeeves, I said, flinging back the bedclothes and rising from the couch. Unchain the eggs and bacon. I will be with you in a moment. After I'd broken the fast and smoked the soothing cigarette, I sallied forth, for I had a busy morning before me. I popped into Aspinall's and pocketed the brooch, and thence repaired to the establishment of the Cohen brothers in Covent Garden, well known among the cognoscenti as the mecca for the discriminating seeker after fancy dress costumes. They were fortunately able to supply me with the required Sinbad, the last they had in stock, and a visit to a nearby theatrical wiggery put me in possession of an admirable set of ginger whiskers, thus giving me a full hand. 
The car was at the door on my return, a suitcase of feminine aspect in its rumble. This seemed to indicate that Nobby had arrived, and as I had expected, I found her in the sitting room, sipping a refresher. It having been some considerable time since we had foregathered, there ensued, of course, a certain period of leaping about and fraternizing. Then, having put away a refresher myself, I escorted her to the car and bunched her in. Jeeves, following my instructions, had placed the small suitcase with the Sinbad in it beneath the front seat, so that it should be under my personal eye. And we were thus all set. I trod on the self-starter, and we began the journey. Jeeves standing on the pavement, seeing us off like an archbishop blessing pilgrims. His air that of one who would shortly be following by train with heavy luggage. Though sorry to be deprived of this right-hand man's society, for his conversation always tends to elevate and instruct, I was glad to get Nobby alone. I wanted to hear all about this pending merger with Boko, each being a valued member of my entourage. The news that they were affianced had interested me strangely. I am never much of a lad for chatting in traffic, and until I had eased the vehicle out of the congested districts, I remained strong and silent, the lips tense, the eyes keen. But when we were bowling along the Portsmouth Road with nothing to distract the attention, I got down to it.